Y'all all definitely please be praying for Jonah, uh, Ronaldo's wife, uh, as she is having more medical problems. Went back to the hospital last night, so we really need to continue to pray for her and her health. We were going to have a potluck today and with them. That's been postponed uh, kind of indefinitely just to make sure because we're not sure where her health is going to be. Um, but we will send word through the week and get a hold of you uh, if there's potluck next week. Um, very thankful to be with you again today. Beloved, we will, Lord willing, finish Acts 15. I know you're like, yeah, right. Uh, we uh, take little chunks and then I feel like we've got it. I'm going to just move a little quicker today, Lord willing. We'll see how it works out. Just very thankful I get to share with you the word again today. And just so you know, I, I was by no means complaining about getting to preach twice today, this morning. This is what I get to do is a blessing. This is privilege. Uh, if I'm up here barely squeaking, it's a privilege. Uh, I just love preaching the word of God. And I know because it transforms your life and it transforms mine and I get to be used by our Savior and Lord to, to share with you where hope is found. So very thankful for the opportunity this morning. Many of us live in conflict resolution mode all the time. We think if there is conflict, we must fix it or our whole world will fall apart. We are going to see some conflicts must be resolved today and reconciliation may occur But sometimes God works despite a conflict that does not get resolved, and He works even when separation occurs. Today we're going to conclude our look at the conflict over the role of the Mosaic Law in the Gentile believers. I'm fairly sure that I haven't answered every single one of your questions. You're welcome to come up to me afterwards and bombard me with them. Uh, but the hope is this, that as we go through this and walk through this, that we learn and grow and we understand these things better as we go along. I would say that we are not a lawless people, but we are a people that are under grace and therefore we want to obey. Uh, Do we obey the Mosaic law? I do not think we're under the Mosaic law, but I do think we're under the law of Christ. And I'm not going to deal with, I can't give you every single answer to all your questions today or even this last month. But as we walk through it, I think you're getting a little clearer picture of everything. So after we finish the conflict and see how that was resolved, we're going to look at another conflict that doesn't end up in unity. But nonetheless works for God's glory. God takes a conflict that isn't resolved and shows himself off anyway. Isn't that good news? We've been making our way through Acts 15, and as we've covered it, we've seen the conflict in verses 1 to 5, that is the conflict over what should the Gentiles do? Should they keep the Mosaic Law or not? Should they be circumcised or not? Are they required to do these things to be saved or not? That was the argument. It started in Antioch. Remember, the Judaizers came there and said that, and then Paul and Barnabas made their way to Jerusalem to deal with the issue. By the way, in your Bible it says they went down to Antioch. Well, if you look at a map, it's actually Antioch is north of Jerusalem. But because Jerusalem is higher in elevation, that's why it would be called that. When they're talking in the Bible, they're not looking at a map. They're talking about going down to Antioch. would be Jerusalem is at a higher elevation. They go down to Antioch even though they're going north. That helps you a little bit understand why sometimes things read that way. So the conflict was in Antioch. They went down to Jerusalem uh, on our map or went up to Jerusalem. And then there was the consideration. That is, Peter gave his sermon, his wonderful sermon that says, we're not going to put that yoke on them anymore that we couldn't hold or our fathers couldn't handle. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Verse 11, right? Then after that, there's the confirmation. That is, Paul and Barnabas did the unrecorded sermon and also explained how God had used them and done miracles to affirm this message. Then last week, we looked at the conclusion. That is, James' sermon. 
James's sermon was he would be considered, some consider him the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he was the half-brother of Jesus, remember? And he spoke and appealed to love as the main motivation for the weak and called them to uh, avoid those things but not putting on the burden of the Mosaic law. In other words, he only gave four. Today we're going to attempt to conclude Acts 15 with the council in verses 22 to 29 and the cooperation in verses 30 to 35 and then maybe we'll get to another conflict. Lord willing, we'll get to all of that. Today we're going to see some hills are worth dying on and other hills that are just, are just opportunities for an expression of grace. However, both involve dying. Dying for truth or dying to self. This is very important. Again, folks, we have to pick our battles carefully. And we will find today which ones we should and which ones we shouldn't fight over. Often we are put in a place where we need to know when to stand against sin and when should we just give grace. Have you asked that question before? Thought of that in your mind? The good news is the Bible gives us a primary answer to this question. If you were to ask me, what is worse, legalism or easy believism? Some of you would say, please do not pit those two against themselves. They're both heresies. Run. But if you were to ask me which is worse, legalism or easy believism, I would emphatically say legalism. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I would say legalism is worse. You know why I'd say that? Because one, legalism, changes salvation by grace alone into work salvation. Legalism is Horrible. The other leans heavily on grace that it wrongly gives excuse for sin after justification. That's wrong too. Both are bad, but one makes salvation about how well we clean ourselves up. The other leans too heavily upon grace and tends to eliminate human responsibility. That's bad too, but I would argue legalism and work salvation is worse. Now I will tell you, that if you were to ask me, which one gets, more, gets me more angry when I'm not submitting to the Lord and I'm in the flesh? I would say, easy believism. Why? Mainly because when I'm in the flesh, people that presume upon grace hurt me. <laughs> they do bad things to me. And I'm prone to get frustrated because they offend me, not because they offend the Lord. So when someone sins against me, the old man... Mr. Legalist gets angry because they hurt me. That's just a fact, folks. I, I don't know about you guys, but most of my anger is over legalism. Thinking, I deserve better. You should be acting better. What are you doing? Right? Friends, the Bible appears to emphasize to the church that both are wrong. Both are bad. But changing salvation to faith plus works is worse. If you read the epistles, especially Paul's letters, you see this. Great grace is given to churches who have sin that are much worse than even some of the stuff that we've had in this church. Things like, you know, the real horrible sexual sins of the Corinthians. But he is still extremely gracious to them at the beginning of those letters. Do you know that? Read them. But for those that change the gospel or seek to go back to salvation by faith plus works, there is very little grace at all. The Apostle Paul gets very, very firm. Notice the beginning of Galatians. Look with me over to Galatians 1. It appears that when Paul and Barnabas went south to Jerusalem to deal with this issue, the Judaizers that were up in Antioch, that stirred everything up, left and went north towards the area of where Paul was doing this first missionary journey. They went and taught the churches in the Galatian area to add works to salvation. 
And so at some point after the Jerusalem council, Paul gets word of the church's abandonment of the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And Paul writes this scathing letter to the churches of Galatia with not much grace at all. A matter of fact, he calls them out. Matter of fact, if you think about this, this would be Paul writing a letter to the churches. I'm going to say it. Some of the fundamentalist churches in America over the last 40 to 50 years. Some that made it all about what you do instead of and how you clean up the outside of the cup instead of serving and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of this last night even, looking over, you know, Clearwater Christian College closed down, and one of the preachers in our area, a big church in our area, just absolutely railed on Clearwater Christian College and said, I know why you closed. It was because you played Christian contemporary music. I wanted to write another letter to the Galatians. Give me a break. It's the same problem. It's the same ones that say King James only of the Bible too, by the way. It's the same ones that say that if you don't have your dress that covers everything including your kneecaps and your ankles, there's a problem. Beloved, it's the same thing. It's adding to the Word of God and making it about how clean you look on the outside. And he says in Galatians 1, what does he say? I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed, sent to condemnation forever. Paul blisters them, doesn't he, over changing the gospel. There are hills to die on, beloved. And they are all related to salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It all really goes back to that. Friends, we are all going to be at different places on, uh, on that scale of giving grace towards people who sin against us. But we all must be united on the issue of the gospel and the salvation that it provides. We die on the person and work of Jesus. We die on salvation by grace alone. We die on the exclusivity of the gospel. We die on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So we see today, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone brings great unity in the early church. A conflict is resolved and unanimity over the gospel occurs. But when the question over when to give grace or not over someone sinning against us is raised, then division happens. We all need to learn and we need to lean towards giving grace when we are sinned against. We need to stand firm for the gospel and we need to stand firm against false gospels. Anybody that makes it about what we do. We see this in Paul's epistle. He is very firm, though when biblical salvation is under attack, but he is gracious when he involves sin against him. Remember Philippians? People were preaching bad. Were doing things in order to... to, uh, They were preaching Christ, but they were doing it to, to get at Paul while he's in prison. And he says what? I rejoice that Christ is preached. It's like they treat him bad, but he goes... It's okay. Christ is being preached. In other words, giving grace to people when they offend us or sin against us is something that we need to strive to do all the time. But we are going to die on the hill of the gospel. 
And when somebody preaches wrong heresy, it's going to be confronted. And we're going to stand firm for the truth. For ten, friends, we see today that the body of Christ unites over the gospel of grace. But as we will see, even the church involves conflict and separation over when to give grace to unrepentant sinners. You'll see. I believe we will see we must all stand for the gospel and trust the Lord to give grace when we are personally hurt. Let's look, though, at the council. The council. We see here the apostles and elders gave this counsel, their instruction, their direction, and their advice concerning the conflict over the role of the law in salvation. There was a plan of action that they gave, and, and that's introduced in verses 20 and 20, 22 and 23. And then there's the authoritative letter. Let's look first at the plan of action. The plan of action. Look with me, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. It seems good, that, that phrase, that word is used three times in this section. It appeared best to the unified leadership, to send Paul and Barnabas to, with the other two leading men. Obviously, they knew that if they saw, sent Paul and Barnabas alone, the people might not accept the message. The false teachers had questioned Paul and Barnabas previously, you know? So if they go back and they say, yep, it was right, it was like we said, here's the letter, the people might not have agreed. So the leadership sent two other men to confirm the group's unified decision. They also sent a letter, most likely written by James, to outline the decision. So the message came both in the form of living and written counsel. The two men sent were prophets, as we see in Acts 15.32. Notice, they were prophets. They were authorities in the early church. They were all four part of the foundation of the church mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So the council came from the established authority of the early church. That was their plan of action, send them. Next we see the council came in the form of an authoritative letter. An authoritative letter. We see that where it starts, the apostles and brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. The letter is, it, it, itself in, it includes an introduction, an explanation, an adjudication, and a valediction. I'm not going to go over all this, and I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time, but these are the things that are in the letter. Notice the letter starts with that introduction. This is a typical introduction. It included who the letter was from, who the letter was to, and a brief greeting. It appealed to the authority of the apostles and elders. It was addressed to more than one local church. It was meant to be circulated through the area to the new churches dominated by Gentiles. In other words, what we have here is a picture of stand on the authority of the leaders, listen to the authority of your leaders, follow the instruction, in this case, of God's Word, and submit to it. Second, we see the explanation. This provided the reason for the letter. Notice in verse 24, look at your Bibles. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. With this explanation, no excuse is given for the false teacher, teachers who had previously stirred up the church. This is why I believe that it's a direct opposition to the previous false teaching. The letter states, Those false teachers came from us, but they spoke not from us. This is what false teachers often do, don't they, beloved? They attempt to use their association with others to be their stamp of approval. Now please, folks, be careful of this. Just because you... Go to Grace Bible Church of Tampa doesn't mean that everything you say is true. And don't use the people you associate with 
as an, a perfect as your authority. Have you ever heard things like this? People say things like, I was at John Piper's church for a number of years. I went to R.C. Sproul's church for 10 years. I went to the Master's Seminary for a year. I know Mark Dever. Then they use their association to launch into their man-made philosophies. Listen, when somebody announces where they're from and they don't have the approval of the ones that they announce, that means what? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. If the people that they, where they come from oppose and go against the very things that they teach... Association means nothing if the ones we associate with don't agree with us and don't send us the truth and don't send them. So to start the letter, we see even the introduction. In the introduction, the apostles disavow themselves from the Judaizer. They say, they weren't speaking for us. And so there's a confrontation there. The letter also identifies the problem created by the false teachers. They have disturbed you and unsettled your souls. This is a direct confrontation of the false teachers. They recognized the problem the Judaizers had created. And again, folks, this is so important. When you read a letter like this, you might think, okay, well, they did give four things that they're not supposed to do. Okay? They give four essentials that they're not supposed to do. And there's not a whole bunch of talk about grace. There's not, they did, why didn't they put all that in a letter? The answer is, is because it was obvious. When they showed up with the letter, it was like, look, what Paul and Barnabas has been telling you, stick with it. They're right. You're not under the Mosaic law. But here are four essentials that you need to do. It was all assumed. Again, this is some application for us, though, is that they had empathy for those that they were talking to. They knew when they were in trouble. They understood that this was unsettling to the soul of the Gentile believer. we got to start keeping the Sabbath. Tomorrow, Friday night, not tomorrow, but Friday night, when the sun goes down, stop. Whatever you do, don't be working. And then when the sun comes back up on Saturday, then you can start working again. That would be unsettling to the soul, wouldn't it? Keep this. And then you start reading the Mosaic Law. and you, There's 300 of these laws. There's over 300 of them and i got to do them now. That's unsettling, folks, for a Gentile believer. But these people had empathy. They understood. There must be care in how we apply the Word of God. Otherwise, we can unsettle other people's souls too. The explanation continued with the reason for sending Judas and Silas with Paul and Barnabas and the letter. With this letter, it both affirms Paul and Barnabas and it also gives credence to those confirming, to, uh, those confirming the witness. They affirmed their love for Paul and Barnabas, notice, and they highlighted the courage of Judas and Silas and Paul and Barnabas. And boy, if there was one line in all of Scripture I would love to have spoken of me, this would be it. Look at it. These four were men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, that's some credence, isn't it? They were risk takers for Christ. I believe this statement was referring to all four men. And what a one-line referral it is. <laughs> this is definitely a case where risk is... Right. Many people risk themselves for all kinds of reasons, but risk for the name of Lord Jesus is God-glorifying risk. People risk for fame. People risk for fortune. People risk for outright foolishness sometimes. But people that risk for God's glory, these are the kind of people we need to follow. These are the people we need to follow their example and we need to listen to them. They were then told to take heed to their message. This was an endorsement of the sermon that was coming. You know that Silas, and, uh, Silas was just about to preach this sermon and obviously 
uh, Judas and Silas were going to preach these long sermons. <laughs> Let's listen to these guys. They're risk takers for the glory of God. That would make me listen. How about you? So, with this kind of risk comes automatic credibility. So the letter pointed to their reliability. These were men of integrity. And these were faithful men committed to God. They were then told to take heed to their message. This was an endorsement of the sermon to come, as I mentioned. Notice also there was the adjudication. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. There you go. It comes from God. And to us to lay upon you no, you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. As we saw last week, there is definitely a re- relieving of some of the restrictions of the Mosaic Law, Right? There's an appeal to the Holy Spirit's role in this adjudication. The judgment was to lay upon the Gentile believers no greater burden than these few essentials. The absence of the Sabbath, circumcision, and numerous of other requirements of the Mosaic Law are obvious. They're not there. Now, you can try to argue for this, and I hear it, People are trying to argue for the Sabbath, that we should keep the Sabbath on Sunday and stuff. But no further burden except for keeping the Sabbath is not there. It does not say that. If they gave four, then why didn't they give five? Okay? It's not there. Now, I know that some of you would say that would be an argument from silence. But I disagree. It's not an argument from silence. Because he says, no greater Burden. There's no other way around that. So the Gentiles were not told to keep the Sabbath or circumcise their children. It's just not there. No burdens are necessary. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Now, there are four essentials for the Gentiles to obey here. They are avoid things sacrificed to idols, avoid blood, Avoid things strangled and avoid fornication. We talked about these a little bit last week. Now, somebody came up to me after the service and it was a good question. So, Mike, what you're telling me is is that love is the primary motivation. We see this in verse 20. Remember, look back at verse 20. It says, But that we write to them to abstain from things contaminated by idols and fornication and from what is strangled, and from blood. And then I explained in verse 21, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, I explained that verse 21 was the motivation. The motivation of love, remember? So a person came up to me and said, So Mike, fornication? How is that? Does that mean that They're free then to fornicate? Uh, But love tells us we shouldn't fornicate? That was the question. It's a good question, isn't it? The answer to the question is, is yes, love tells us not to fornicate. It's the same motivation. The fact of the matter is, is the motivation, the law of Christ, still rules. It rules in all four of those. And let me explain how. I believe that these essentials should be kept by the New Covenant believer for one main reason. And what is that? Love. Fornication is obviously not loving. Correct? Our perverted world mixes up lust and love, doesn't it? But for the born-again believer, fornication is one of the most unloving things you could do. Fornication is being involved in any kind of sexual perversion outside a biblical, biblically defined marriage between a one man and one woman. Sexual relationships outside of marriage are unloving. Sexual relationships in the LGBT variety is unloving. Participating in or viewing pornography is unloving. Do you understand you are giving an affirmation to people that are dying and going to hell? 
you give your approval to their death and go to hell. That is absolutely barbaric, unloving things to do. Friends, the world's problem is, is it thinks that the primary reason for sexual relationship is personal gratification. This is totally backwards. This is why the world finds itself pursuing anything that brings personal arousal. That's why Bruce Jenner did what he did. He did it because it brought him fulfillment. He didn't do it thinking of anybody else. He was thinking about who? Himself. It's the most unloving thing he could do. And beloved, we can't do that. But why can't we do it? Because we've been bought by Christ. We have been loved and we don't want to do that, do we? Fornication is as far from our minds or should be as far from our minds as possible. When we come to truly know the love of God, we understand that our bodies are not our own anymore. Sexual relations are for our spouse, not ourselves. Listen to me closely, men. Sexual relations are for your spouse, not yourself. That's not your primary goal in your relationship with your wife, and you have missed it. You are still bordering on selfishness. Selfishness in sexual relationships in marriage are still a reality. But it must be repented of. If we engage in any sexual behavior other than in the marriage for our spouse and for the glory of God, we are not honoring God. We are being selfish and thus we're not loving them. If you are single, then you have not been given a spouse to serve in this way. So it is totally off limits in all cases to engage in any kind of sexual relation with a person. It is unloving to engage in this kind, even sexually explicit behavior outside of marriage. Do you understand? This is an essential fact because it doesn't love people. It doesn't put others above ourselves. It doesn't sacrifice for others. That's pretty clear, right? Good. So avoiding fornication is loving others as we have been loved. Avoiding food sacrificed to idols is another act of love. It seeks to keep people from stumbling over your allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Again, as we saw last week from Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, it's not like the idols are true gods. The believer is free, but only as, to, as they understand love, they desire to guard the conscience of those around them. The believer, again, we only eat what will keep others from stumbling. We only do what will keep others from stumbling. Why do we do it? Because we have been loved by the Lord and therefore we want to love others. Avoid thing, it, it also says avoid things strangled. And blood was forbidden again in the Mosaic law. And to do it around a bunch of Jewish people that were hearing it preached every Sabbath is to say, I don't care about your conscience. Not because eating a rare steak, which I ate the other night, not real rare, but medium rare, but, but because of our fellowship around... There's no Jewish believers in here, so I'm not going to cause any of you to stumble. The Jewish believers would have had their conscience hurt. They could have either improperly judged the Gentile believer, or they could have thought, I can go against my conscience and do whatever I want to do. And so that would be wrong. That's not loving. Again, all of these have love as its primary motivation. That's what's going through the heart of a believer. We are controlled by the law of love. Avoid them not because you're required to in order to be saved. Avoid them not because it earns you a little better standing with God. Avoid them to lay down your life for others as Christ laid down his life for you. I'm sure that this is part of the long messages of Judas and Silas that, they, that he, they gave. 
In a sense, their message was probably very similar to Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? Avoid these things because you will do well by abstaining. Again, it's not primarily so you look more holy. Not because people will affirm your righteousness like the Pharisees did. The primary reason is love. And the grace of God controls us. Look over at 1 Corinthians 9. I love this section. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul explains this love that motivates him in 1 Corinthians 9. Looking at your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Notice. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all men... I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Beloved, did you get it? This is what it's all about. This is what we as believers do. Everything in our life is about the gospel. It's about honoring and exalting the God that bought us through His Son. And therefore, we do whatever to die to self to help others. This this is a summary of the four essentials. That's what those four essentials are based on. So notice back in Acts 15. Look at the cooperation. I love this. Look at the cooperation. So when they were sent away, verse 30, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Boy, that one's one that all preachers hold on to. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Pilate, or Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So we see here, the missionaries did what they had been set apart to do. And as we see, the response is exuberation. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. This was a case of the requirements being considered a privilege compared to the overwhelming burden of the Mosaic law. Why were they encouraged? I mean, they were told to do four things, and those four things could only be done by the loving God. The answer is, is because they understood the gospel. They got it. This is great news. They were given the privilege of loving as they were loved. They were not told of the blessings and the cursings that would happen if they didn't keep all the 300 plus rules of the Mosaic law. They were told four things to avoid for the sake of loving others. Beloved, when you get this whole concept that we are now under grace, not under the law, it changes your whole perspective on obedience. Everything changes. When you're told to do something by God, especially love people, you go... Great! This is good! That's a good idea! I need to do that! And we rejoice. But if you're told you're under the Mosaic law and the blessings or curses are coming, watch out! That is horrifying. And it causes a bunch of strife within the people. Brendan and I were talking about Pilgrim's Progress this week, John Bunyan's illustration of the law and grace of the gospel. It's a perfect illustration. I want to read this, uh, just as a little section from it to help clarify the law and the gospel. Now listen closely, okay? 
interpreter, one of the guys that Christian meets along the way. Interpreter at one point took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large house that was full of dust because it was never swept. After Christian had reviewed the dusty home a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now when he began to sweep, the dust began to overwhelm Christian, so much so that Christian had almost choked to death. Then the interpreter said to a lady that stood by, Bring water here and sprinkle the room. When she had obeyed, it was swept and cleaned with pleasure. Then Christian asked, What does this mean? The interpreter answered, The house is the heart of man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is the original sin and inward corruption that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. But she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now as you saw, as soon as the first man began to sweep, the dust did so fly about the room around him and could not be cleaned. Instead, you almost choked to death. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleaning the heart by, by its working from sin, it provokes the heart, Romans 7, 9. It puts strength into it, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, And it increases in the soul, Romans five twenty. Even as the law does expose and forbid sin, for the law does not give power to subdue it. Crucial. Again, as you saw, the lady sprinkled the room with the water, upon which it was cleaned with pleasure. This is to show you that when the gospel comes in, the sweet and precious influence on the heart, then I say, is even as saw the lady trap the dust by sprinkling the floor with the water, so is sin vanished and subdued and the soul is made clean. Through faith in the gospel and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. That's it. Do you get it? The law just makes the dusty mess worse. It just makes everything bad. But the grace of the gospel purifies the soul. When we understand God's grace, we want to obey Him. It purifies our soul. Both justification at the beginning and sanctification as it goes along. As we trust in Christ, as we know His glory, as we understand God's grace in our life, we want to obey. But if you take that law and you start... Messing around with the dust. It's all it's going to do is produce bigger problems in the soul. When the Gentile believers heard that they weren't under the Mosaic law, they rejoiced. Again, and they rested in the purifying good news of Jesus and His work on their behalf. The law inflamed the old man, but the gospel provides grace to love others. And the results were, they were reminded of their peace with God. And they sent Judas back to Jerusalem in peace. They were some joyful believers. They were now ready and willing to learn more about the Word. And that's why Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the Word of the Lord. Oh, folks, do you understand that when you really get the grace of God, the best place to be is sitting under the Word of God. Do you get it? There is no better place than to sit and listen more about who God is and what He's done. But if we're under the Mosaic Law, we've missed it. Or we put added preferences and we make it about things that aren't even in the Bible, it makes self-righteousness and it creates pride. And who wants to listen to the Bible anyway then? Just give me some more rules that I can jump over. That's why those legalistic churches are dying. They're dying. 
You know why they're dying? Because who wants to stay there? There's no joy in knowing the grace of God. And so what do they do? They do the very thing that that legalistic preacher accused Clearwater of. They change their message to try to keep more people. And they're the ones doing all the seeker-sensitive stuff nowadays. A lot of those fundamentalist churches. Now listen, I'm with the old school fundamentalist. I'm with them, the fundamentals of doctrine. But I am not a fundamentalist when it comes to the garbage that they added to the scriptures. Junk. Again, contrary to the way the world thinks, freedom from the law does not lead to uncontrolled sin. Did you hear me? Freedom from the law does not mean uncontrolled sin. It means obedience. <laughs> it means the opposite. It actually leads to a desire to know God's word more. When we know we've been saved and set free from bondage, we actually want more of God. When we know it's not based on what we do, it's what he did, give me more of Jesus. So the Gentiles believers rejoiced and they cooperated with the gospel instead of grieving under it. Listen, if you come to church thinking that it's because of what you do, this is not going to be a great place to go. You're not going to like being here. Because the fact of the matter is, we say we can't do it here. We can't do it. We need God. We need grace. We need Christ, don't we? Now, by grace we do it, but ultimately it's because our eyes are fixed on Him that's doing it and working in us. And yes, we obey, but we obey because we want to, because God's grace is working in us. And we do it out of love because He first loved us. So what we have seen is when people try to impose the Mosaic Law upon Gentile believers, they were disturbed and unsettled in their hearts. But after the good news of the council's decision was brought to them, they rejoiced and they grew in their love and desire for the Lord and His Word. And as the gospel intended to do, it brought unity. The truth was proclaimed. The false teachers were exposed. They stood together against the false gospel that was being propagated in the early church. But next we see sometimes there are times to agree to disagree. We're not always going to agree. We need to make sure that these disagreements, however, should not derail us from the main mission. Please get this. Here we learn a very important lesson. We need to die on the purity of the gospel hill. Do you understand? We will die on that hill here. We will die on the gospel doctrine. You understand the phrase, hill to die on, is taken from a military strategy. The high point is often the place that's easiest to defend and very important for the overall victory. Some hills are worth dying on because they help us win the war. Figuratively speaking, the gospel is the hill we all need to die on. Every single one of us die on that hill. We must stand for the gospel of grace. God has providentially used this conflict over the law to solidify the glory of the gospel in the early church. Now, this is why, as for GBCT, us, Grace Bible, we will die on the doctrine of salvation. The gospel is all about the person and work of Christ. The gospel is all about God's unmerited favor towards us sinners. The gospel is faith alone in Christ alone, not in self. The gospel is about righteousness from God, not self-righteousness. We must preach this and teach this to ourselves every single day. We must preach this to everyone we are given an opportunity to. We must graciously correct those in opposition who oppose this gospel. And we will continue to do that. And whenever I hear somebody in our community that's close to us and we have a relationship with and they disagree with that gospel, I will confront. The next month I am going to meet with a pastor that allowed somebody to speak that I love dearly. I love these people, but 
They allowed to speak of a false gospel. I am going to go meet with him and confront that. The gospel is not the prosperity gospel. The gospel is not the word of faith gospel. The gospel is not works righteousness of Rome. The gospel is not freedom from the world's oppression. The gospel is not God wants you to be yourself. The gospel is not always, always lead to heaven. The gospel is not liberty and justice for all now. That is not the gospel. None of those are the gospel. We must all be willing to graciously confront anyone who preaches these false gospels. We must go into the room and work with the professing believers calling for them to return to the purity of the gospel until we unify again in the gospel. But we must also understand there are times to agree to disagree and follow different paths. Next we get to this glimpse. Look at this conflict that was not initially resolved. The two parties agree to disagree. This is one of the passages in the Bible that I would just love to know. And there's not a lot of information here, and I'm going to go ahead and dig into it a little bit. And I'm probably not going to cover every question you have, but you know what? I think the way it's worded is so that we don't have a lot of answers. It's worded as if you would go, hmm, why did this happen? Look, another conflict. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul, insisting that they should not take him along, who deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. (laughs) Isn't this an intriguing passage? Do you know how many times it's been used against me? I've heard this one over and over and over. This passage has always intrigued me. I've heard it used as an excuse for leaving a church numerous times. <laughs> By the way, I don't think we should use it that way. I've heard it as an excuse for church splits. <laughs> I've heard it used for an excuse for being harsh. Well, Paul was harsh, so I can be harsh. But as we've said, we must be careful of applying narratives properly. Just a side note. None of us in the room and none of those that I've ever talked to were apostles like Barnabas and Paul were. None of us have experienced anything like these men had experienced on the mission field. And I'm convinced the conflict was not over a doctrinal issue. So if somebody says, I've got to leave because of a doctrinal issue, that's not, uh-uh, you can't apply that for this. We need to sit down and talk. We need to keep working. I'm also convinced we don't know everything that was going on in the hearts of the men. Here are some observations, just quickly. The start with the desire to edify the church they had previously established. So both men appear to have the desire to make disciples and go to those two areas, okay? Cyprus and then up into the Galatian area. So both men appear to have what? A good desire. A desire to follow God. The problem arises when Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, with him again. Now, at this point, some of you, oh, nepotism. Nepotism. Barnabas is at fault. Be careful. Be careful. Remember, we know that on the first journey... John Mark had gone, but he had left for Jerusalem before the group went on to the territories around Galatia. We know that from Acts 13, 13, right? So John Mark had abandoned him. So Barnabas, being the encourager that he is, what does he do? He wants to give the guy grace. Come on, you can go again. Let's go, right? But as we see, Paul had interpreted John's departure as deserting them. 
Now, after or before we all start jumping on Paul's side of this debate, did he get deserted? Did they? Did he desert him? Yeah. But is this something that would, should cause them to never go on another missionary trip? Some of you in the room said no. Some of you in the room said, yeah, he lost his dirt. Remember, none of us have experienced anything like what these men did and went through on the mission field. You just don't have any clue. It's a lot harder than anything you can comprehend. Listen, there was not electricity at that time. Do you understand that there were not paved roads? It wasn't a pretty sight. It was hard. Do you understand? They didn't get in boats with air conditionings. It was hard. And everywhere they went, people what? Hated them. None of us have experienced anything like this. It appears from this disagreement that Paul is like the stern sergeant in the military. You just can't handle this. This is one I can't wait to get to heaven to get more information. (laughs) Who was right? Who was wrong? Answer? Doesn't tell us. It does not tell us. It doesn't tell us whether Paul was right or Barnabas was right. I could make a case for either one, couldn't you? You could make a case for either one. So what's the answer? Walk with God. That's the answer. Walk with God. Depend on His grace. Trust Him. Keep going. The coolest thing about the whole thing is God used it despite it. That's the great news. Do you understand that Cyprus was the island that they went to first? The other places are the northern areas. So what did they do? They split up and they covered the same territory. They went back and they strengthened both churches. Both groups. And by splitting up, it actually helped. Now, I guarantee you, Paul and Barnabas weren't thinking that as they walked away from each other. I bet they were thinking, there's a, man, why was he so harsh on, why was he so harsh on him? Barnabas, man, why didn't he give grace? I mean, we just talked about the glory of the gospel and do things for love and God's grace is so great. What are you doing, Paul? I can just see him walking away thinking that. And then Paul, on the other hand, man, this guy, his commitment to the people is just not as strong. He just doesn't know the glory of the gospel enough. If he knew the glory of the gospel enough, he would have never deserted us. And we can't take a chance of it not looking good and not presenting this message of the gospel that can transform and make you take risks. We can't show that. We're not going to show that with him. He might mess up. I lean, I, I lean, I lean, and I'm not positive. I lean that this is an attempt by God to show that Barnabas and Paul were just men. I think that God is just trying to show that they're just men. And that despite conflict that doesn't get resolved initially, it does later, by the way, Paul calls for John Mark and set, calls him his beloved the initial conflict still shows that God is still working despite men not being able to always get along. So folks, when we come to the gospel, what is the answer? Well, I want to err on grace. How about you? I want to err on grace. I want to give people grace. At the same time, there is a call to love as Christ has loved. And we are going to continue to call each one of you always to pursue love, pursue Christ. Now for you in the room that are not believers in Jesus yet, this is an impossible paradox for you. You can't love. You can't do it. It's impossible for you to keep those four essentials. I promise it's impossible. But there's hope. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to die to pay for sin. Even your sin. He died to deliver you from death and punishment. 
He died to deliver you from sin. Turn to him. Trust in him. And you will know the joy of being loved as children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we do call for you to help us to know the gospel better. Help us to stand for the truth. Help us to faithfully proclaim the gospel. Help us, Lord, to not turn to the left or to the right. Help us to share this truth with others. And then, Lord, help us to give grace, to be kind, to be ready to forgive. When somebody hurts us, help us to be ready to turn our cheek. Oh, Lord, help us to be people controlled by the gospel of grace. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.